There are a lot of situations that can arise in severe pancreatitis that are difficult to feel 100% confident about, such as what do you do with fluid collection seen on imaging? And it depends so much on the clinical picture. Usually, we try to manage them conservatively. However, sometimes these fluid collections continue to get bigger and cause significant pain, even to the point they can compress adjacent organs. Or we may be concerned that the fluid has become infected because of an unexplained fever or leukocytosis or gas in the fluid collection. Therefore, medical, endoscopic, or surgical intervention may become needed. And we will come back to fluid collections. I first want to contrast fluid collections with other processes that occur with the pancreas. So what about pancreatic necrosis? The pancreas can do a heck of a job in auto-digesting itself. Hypovolemia, hypotension are often the clinical signs that necrosis may be occurring. Ultrasound is and should be the initial imaging test in nearly every patient presenting with pancreatitis because it helps determine if gallstones are the etiology. But ultrasound does not generally help to determine the severity of pancreatitis. Contrast-enhanced CT scan will help in determining severity, but does not need to be done for most patients with pancreatitis. Doing an early CT in patients with mild pancreatitis, which is most patients, just increases cancer-causing radiation and cost. You don't get much value from a CT done too early. And let's remember, one of our key roles as hospitalists is to save resources so there will be enough of the patient's money left to spend their life savings on the last month of life, such as on the ridiculously priced novel oncology agents that will keep them alive for an extra three weeks. Bad humor aside, we also need to remember not only the radiation risk, but since patients are volume depleted early in the course of acute pancreatitis, there is an increased risk of contrast-induced kidney damage. So that all being said, what do we do with CT results when things don't look stellar? A harrowing thing to see on a contrast-enhanced CT is a loss of tissue perfusion. It's a bad deal, especially if the necrotic tissue gets infected. It can be a very deadly situation. In fact, if you're going to die from pancreatitis, it usually will be from necrotizing pancreatitis, but particularly if that necrotic tissue gets infected, because the death rate is about 25% when that happens. Pancreatic necrosis can be either sterile or infected. While infected is obviously worse, it should be noted that those with sterile necrosis can be in really bad shape with organ failure, shock, and the whole shebang. So should we give prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infection in severe pancreatitis or in patients with sterile necrosis. That's how I was trained, as many of you my age or older were, but now we know we were trained wrong on that issue. The most recent guidelines address this, so I'm going to read a portion of the current guidelines to drive home this point. So the recommendations are that antibiotics should be given for an extrapancreatic infection, such as cholangitis, catheter-acquired infections, bacteremia, urinary tract infections, and pneumonia. However, 
routine use of prophylactic antibiotics in patients with severe acute pancreatitis is not recommended. The use of antibiotics in patients with sterile necrosis to prevent the development of infected necrosis is not recommended. And so the guidelines then go on to explain their rationale. So I beg your patience on this, but I'm, I'm going to read this entire paragraph. Although early unblinded trials suggest that administration of antibiotics may prevent infectious complications in patients with sterile necrosis, subsequent better designed trials have consistently failed to confirm an advantage. Because of the consistency of pancreatic necrosis, few antibiotics penetrate when given intravenously. The antibiotics shown to penetrate and used in clinical trials include carbapenems, quinolones, metronidazole, and high-dose cephalosporins. Since 1993, there have been 11 prospective randomized trials with proper study design, participants, and outcome measures that evaluated the use of prophylactic antibiotics in severe acute pancreatitis. From this meta-analysis, the number needed to treat was 1,429 for one patient to benefit. So that's the end of that quote, um, but obviously a pretty high number needed to treat, and we can't really justify giving antibiotics to more than 1,000 people to get one benefit. What would be the tip-off that necrotic tissue is infected? If there is fever, leukocytosis, and failure to improve or unexpected deterioration is happening, that should grab your attention. However, those symptoms, as well as tachycardia, can also occur in sterile necrosis. On imaging, if you visualize gas bubbles within the necrotic tissue on CT scan, that strongly adds to the evidence that there is an infection. Fine needle aspiration of the necrotic area, guided by either CT or ultrasound, and then doing gram staining and culture of the aspirate, is one way to confirm infection and guide antibiotic therapy. However, some argue that we don't want to be too cavalier in ordering fine needle aspirations, as we don't want to infect sterile fluid by doing the invasive procedure. Also, be aware that false negatives do occur with aspiration. And if you see gas bubbles on CT, you probably don't need to get an invasive procedure every time to confirm the infection. Fine needle aspiration remains one of those things that the guidelines admits that it remains controversial as to when to utilize it. So physician judgment will need to be relied on for many cases. If you decide on empiric use of antibiotics without doing a fine needle aspiration because you strongly suspect the infection, there are many who would say that you are justified in doing so. And then likewise, if you do a fine needle aspiration, really watch those culture results and base your antibiotic therapy on those results. If you are going to use empiric antibiotics, meaning if used prior to confirmation of organism and sensitivity, the choice of antibiotics includes imipenem, psilostatin, which some people call primaxin. So you give 500 milligrams IV every eight hours for 14 days. You can use meripenem, one gram IV every eight hours for 14 days. You could use Cipro, 400 milligrams IV, Q12 hours plus flagyl, 500 milligrams IV 
every eight hours for 14 days. I guess I should call flagell metronidazole. So if infection does occur, when is it going to happen? And while it can happen at any time, most infections of the pancreas happen about two to four weeks into severe pancreatitis. Before that happens, severe pancreatic autodigestion provokes a SERS phase with lots of inflammatory mediators that can result in organ failure, such as the kidneys and the cardiorespiratory system. Likewise, other bacterial infections are more likely to happen earlier before the onset of a pancreatic infection, such as a pneumonia. Now let's talk surgery and also discuss IV fluids. This is one organ the surgeons hate to touch, and that is very understandable. Open abdominal decompression is utilized to relieve abdominal compartment syndrome. A lot of third spacing occurs in acute pancreatitis because the inflammation resulting from vascular permeability is pretty significant. And while third spacing can be exacerbated by fluid resuscitation, still do aggressively hydrate. Volume resuscitation is the cornerstone of early management because necrotizing pancreatitis is essentially an ischemic event and early aggressive volume resuscitation helps maintain perfusion. The guidelines address this saying, and I'm quoting them, aggressive hydration defined as 250 to 500 milliliters per hour of isotonic crystalloid solution should be provided to all patients unless cardiovascular, renal, or other related comorbid factors exist. Early aggressive intravenous hydration is most beneficial during the first 12 to 24 hours and may have little benefit beyond this time period. So that's the end of the quote from the guidelines. So again, to reemphasize, hydrate aggressively early and then back off to avoid the problems of too much fluid. If you fail to aggressively hydrate early, you can cause further pancreatic ischemia from hypoperfusion, which then exacerbates cell death, potentially increasing necrosis, and therefore increasing the risk of death. Now watch out for fluid overload, and you likely will need to back off on hydration about 12 to 24 hours into aggressive hydration. So you can't just set the fluid rate at 500 milliliters per hour without plans to back down within about 12 to 24 hours. Needless to say, patients with renal disease and congestive heart failure need more precautions when it comes to aggressive hydration. I do want to take a moment to point out that there was a small study, but it was randomized controlled, and it was in the May 13, 2011 journal called Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. And the conclusion of the article was, I'm quoting, patients with acute pancreatitis who were resuscitated with lactated Ringer solution had reduced systemic inflammation compared to those who received saline. So that's the end of the quote. Those patients getting lactated ringers ended up not only reducing SIRS after 24 hours, but their C-reactive protein levels were also noted to be lower. Therefore, it seems reasonable to use lactated ringers as the fluid of choice in acute pancreatitis. The exception is in those cases of acute pancreatitis due to hypercalcemia because lactated ringers does contain some calcium.
And while I've said that the fluids are extremely important to give, I've also said that the fluid can move into the intracellular space, causing intra-abdominal hypertension. For the really sick patients on the ventilator, we often monitor intra-abdominal pressure with transvesicular bladder measurements. Intra-abdominal hypertension is defined as a sustained intra-abdominal pressure of more than 12 millimeters of mercury. Abdominal compartment syndrome is defined as a sustained intra-abdominal pressure of more than 20. Open abdominal decompression can relieve abdominal compartment syndrome, but did I mention the surgeons hate operating on patients with severe pancreatitis for good reason? Therefore, we need to aggressively medically manage the patients and use open abdominal decompression as a last resort. So what can be done to reduce pressure in the abdomen before resorting to surgery? Try diuretics if the patient isn't hypotensive. Tapping ascites percutaneously is another option. For those already on the ventilator, neuromuscular blockade may also help relax the abdomen. Once again, I'm going to read from the well-written recent guidelines, this time to clarify when patients with acute pancreatitis should and should not be operated on. So the recommendations are this. In patients with mild acute pancreatitis found to have gallstones in the gallbladder, a cholecystectomy should be performed before discharge to prevent a recurrence of acute pancreatitis. In patients with necrotizing biliary acute pancreatitis, in order to prevent infection, cholecystectomy is to be deferred until active inflammation subsides and fluid collections resolve or stabilize. Asymptomatic pseudocysts and pancreatic or extrapancreatic necrosis do not warrant intervention regardless of size, location, and or extension. In stable patients with infected necrosis, surgical, radiological, and or endoscopic drainage should be delayed preferably for more than four weeks to allow for liquefaction of the contents and the development of a fibrous wall around the necrosis, which we call walled-off necrosis. And then finally, in symptomatic patients with infected necrosis, minimally invasive methods of necrosectomy are preferred to open necrosectomy. Now, just in case necrosectomy isn't a term that you use every day, it means removing devitalized tissue. And with the pancreas, you attempt to do it very gently to minimize organ injury. I think it's worth reemphasizing a point from the guidelines. It is tempting for us doctors to drain infections sooner rather than later. In many infectious disease situations, that makes a lot of sense. However, if there is infected necrosis, it turns out it is not necessarily all that smart to be overly aggressive and that delaying the drainage for a month often allows the collection to become encapsulated, which we refer to as walled-off necrosis, which helps achieve better drainage later on. This walled-off necrosis can be intrapancreatic or extrapancreatic. I still do want to talk about some fluid collections like pseudocysts, but we'll have to do that on the next round. You've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat.